Well, if you would travel to Wittenberg, Germany, what is called the birthplace of the Protestant Reformation, and you would go to the castle door where Martin Luther nailed the the 95 Thesis in the place of the original wooden door that was there, you would find a a solid bronze door. The wooden door that, that was there that stood for assume hundreds of years, burned in a fire during the, uh, the Seven Years' War, uh, 1756 to 1763. And after the fire, uh, King Wilhelm IV of Prussia had the, had the door replaced with a bronze door. And on that bronze door is inscribed the 95 statements or the 95 theses. And in most Christians, even non-Lutherans, um, are familiar with, with Martin Luther and familiar with the, with the 95 Theses. But I would say few um, have ever read its contents. It might be like us as Americans. We, we've heard of the Bill of Rights. We know the Constitution. We might know the first couple sentences, but we probably many people have never read what the document actually, actually states. The 95 Theses of Luther were was actually 95 statements that, that he was making and that he hoped to debate about. And, and you remember Luther never intended to start a Reformation. At the point that he nailed that to the door, he actually thought that the Pope was a good guy and that it was just his minions that had gotten off track. So in those days, if you wanted to have a discussion or even a theological debate, you would you would not post things on a blog because there were no such things as blog or internets. You would go to a public place, and, and the door of the castle was like the bulletin board. And not everyone could read, and not everyone could read Latin. Only the, the theological eggheads could read Latin. So you would go, and you would nail those, you would nail your statements to the door. And after a period of time, people would come by, oh, there's something new there. They'd read it. And then there would be a discussion that, that would be that we had about it. that was Luther's purpose. So the ninety five theses are actually ninety five statements that he wanted to discuss, and it was particularly biting and cutting about the abuses of the Catholic Church and involved in indulgences, how you could sell them, and the power of of, of indulgences. Those of you who are who are familiar with with Catholic dogma. Uh, know that the the indulgences that the Pope still dispenses today, you can go get an indulgence in Rome today for a certain amount of money. The indulgence is a is a piece of paper that's given by the Pope under his authority that that passes over or covers a, a sin, if if you will. And and where that comes from is is in Catholic theology. You're, uh, there's, there's certain people, you and I probably would, would never be included in this, in this group, but there are certain people who, who live good enough lives that, that they don't have to go to purgatory. You know, the whole purpose of purgatory is it's purgatory. So even though you, you confess and even though you go through the seven sacraments, when you die, you still have sin in your life that needs to be purged. So you go to this place called purgatory and have, have your remaining sins burn off. You're purified, so then you can go into heaven. Well, there are certain people that are righteous enough, they don't need to go to purgatory. You know, 
they 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 can pass go and collect two hundred dollars. So they actually have extra righteousness, and that extra righteousness is deposited in what's called the treasury of merits. So it's like this treasure chest of righteousness in heaven. The Pope has the key to that, as being the one who has the keys of Peter. So the Pope can actually draw down from the treasury of merits and attach that to an indulgence and dispense that to you or give certain number of years off of purgatory or whatever it was. And for a nominal fee, that's available to you. And that primarily was how St. Peter's Basilica was built. It was built off of the, the backs of people purchasing indulgences for themselves, for their own sins, or to get grandma a hundred years off of purgatory or whatever it, whatever it might be. It's a, it's a disgusting and repudiating concept and, and theology, and it was just as disgusting in the day of, of Luther, and Luther was writing against it. If you would actually read Luther's 95 Thesis, you, you would read the, the very first statement that he makes. Number one on the list is this. Here's his first statement of 95. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It's his first statement. Burke Parsons said of this statement, with no qualification or explanation, Luther was calling the church to repent. It's the first thing he says. Jesus commands us to repent, and that is not a one-time act. That's, that, that, that's a marking of a believer's life. We live a life of repentance because every day we, we sin. And not only that, Luther's statement communicates that he understands that it's simply not a one-time action, but it, but it encompasses the entirety of a believer's life. And, and repentance takes place not only whenever, whenever we're converted to Christ, but as I said, every day when we live. And so this morning, we looked at seven assurances, seven assurance-granting categories to take our spiritual temperature. We're taking inventory. So tonight, what I want to do is take you to three different passages in the Bible and, and, and show you what, what a repentant life looks like. If you find a need for repentance in any of those seven categories, what would that, what would that look like? Open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 and verse, verse 7. Actually, look at verse 2. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that repentance is, is a change of mind resulting in a change of life. It's not just a change of mind. It's not just a change of life. It is a change of mind resulting in a, in a change of, of life. And a common definition for repentance is, is turning from sin and and surely that's true. But when a person turns from, from sin, when a person repents, they turn from their sin, they, there are some operations that happen before and after that, that turning that, that we're going we're gonna to look at tonight. So we're going to see, we're gonna see what, what happens on the front end. We're going to see what, what the, a life looks like that's repented, and we're going to 
take an x-ray of the heart, what's going on in the, uh, in the heart. And, and when you examine Scripture, there are three components. I see three components to, to genuine repentance, and that's your, your proposition for tonight. And the first one we're going to find here in Matthew chapter, chapter 3, and that is repentance is accompanied by, by fruits. Or if you want to use the term I use in the definition, a changed life. There's evidence of that in one's life. Three components to genuine repentance. Number one, it's accompanied by, by fruit. I mean, Luther was in good company when he started his list with a call to repentance because here you find in the Gospel of Matthew the New Testament beginning with this message of what? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand. And here you have John the Baptist who was the one who was coming in the spirit of Elijah. And what was John's role? What, what, what did John do? He was to prepare. He was to prepare God's people for the Messiah. And so before the Messiah was going to come, a person was going to come, Elijah was going to come, and he was going to prepare the hearts of, of, of the people. And so here you have John the Baptist doing that at the very beginning of the New Testament, very beginning of the Gospel, the Gospel of of Matthew and his message is repent. And look how he describes it. Verse 2. Repent that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, or prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Describes John. John was clothed in camel hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food, and then in Jerusalem and all of Judea and the region around Jordan, they went out and, and he was baptizing. And baptism was an association with John's message. Those who submitted to the baptism of John were saying, I agree with what you are saying. Your message of repent, that I need to repent, I agree with. I submit to that. I, I associate with that. And verse 6, and we're baptizing by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So here you have a group of people. John's preaching a message. They're responding to the message. They're agreeing with the message. They're confessing their sins, and they're submitting to, to that baptism. But look at verse 7. Here's a contrast to those that, that were doing that. We're associating with the message. We're confessing their sins, and, and we're submitting to that baptism. John says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism... He said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath that is to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, pick up on that word, to speak, to, to, to say only, we have Abraham as our father. For I say unto you, Abe, God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore... Every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and will gather wheat into his barn but he will burn up the chaff in unquenchable fire. That's a strong message here. 
I mean, here's a group of guys that were known that were responding to John's sermon when they were submitting to baptism, and he stops them. He calls them brood of, of vipers, you pit of snakes. Now think about that for a Jew, for a Pharisee or Sadducee. Okay, he's echoing back to the, to the Garden of Eden. Snakes are not good, good animals as far as a Jew is concerned, especially a religious man. And he calls them a pit of, of vipers. And he talks about bearing fruit. Accompany something with this testimony of, of repentance. Because your life is not marking what you're submitting to. And then he says, do not say. Just because you say something isn't a, 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 an ironclad guarantee. For in the end, he says, salvation will be proven by, by the fruit of your life. It's not who says, Lord, Lord, but he who does the will of the Father. So you have this, you have this, this pattern all through the New Testament. And John begins with it, with it right here. And the Bible tells us that true repentance will result in a change of actions as well as some clear attitudes that reside in the heart, and we'll look at those. Listen to Acts 26, verse, verse 20. Same thing. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. So there's a preaching, and there's a preaching that they should repent and turn to God and then give evidence of that, of that repentance by their deeds. Now, what's hard about that? What's hard about that is there's a period of time that has to pass, right? I mean, I can respond and be, and, and be very genuine and feel very genuine and look very genuine to you and to my wife and to whoever else, but here the evidence of whether something really has happened is a change of life, and a change of life happens over a period of time. That's why the old-timers called it a profession of faith. You're professing faith. Well, is that profession real or not? Well, that will remain to be seen, whether, there is a, whether there's a changed life or not. A repentance is a, is a spiritual change of mind that results in a, in a change of, of action. You've probably heard it this way, as, as I've heard it as well. It's described as, as you're heading one way on the interstate, taking the off-ramp and, and getting back on the other way. That's true. All of that happens. Think of the fruit or the evidence of a changed life. As life begins to change, and as life begins to give credence to the profession that, that you're making, think of that as road signs that you're headed in the, in the right direction. That you're headed in a new direction and uh, in the right direction. Now, um, you know, I mean, we're... We're we're primarily a family on a you know on a Sunday night, and you know um, all of the different things that are out there. Joel Osteen and other people that that really don't want anything to do with that message, the message of John in in word or in in deed. Um, saw a quote even preparing today where where Osteen uh, said that 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 he doesn't preach repentance. Um, that that really he believed his goal was to just give people a boost in life for the week that, that is to come. Well, I don't know about you, but I need a whole lot more than a boost in life for the week that that is to come. MacArthur said 
the meaning of the word repentance has been so twisted in recent years to the point that its biblical meaning is now obscured in the minds of many. The idea, here's the reason I, uh, I read this quote, goes along with this first point. The idea that genuine repentance could result in anything but a change of life is completely foreign to Scripture. The idea that genuine repentance could result in anything but a change of life is completely foreign in Scripture. Now, does that mean it happens all at once? No. <laughs> that's, that's evidence here. It's fruit, and, and fruit develops, and it grows, and there are all kinds of reasons why some trees bear abundant fruit. You remember in John 15 about abiding in the vine, abiding in, in, in the Word? A genuine believer is, is someone that, that's in Christ. They will bear fruit. And God is glorified. The Father is glorified when we bear much fruit. So you may bear a little fruit. I may, I may bear even less fruit. Some of, another one of you may bear much fruit. But fruit will be in the life of, a, of someone who is, who is genuine, uh, genuinely repentant. That's number one. Number two, repentance involves a, a work of God. It involves a work of God. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23. You even make that stronger. It is a work of God. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And we will begin reading in verse 23. As soon as I get out of 2 Thessalonians and get over to the other 2T, 2 Timothy. All right? Last letter that Paul wrote before he died. Second letter to Timothy to a church that clearly has believers and unbelievers in it. You remember 1 Timothy was written to the church at Ephesus because there was all kinds of issues in it. Timothy is there as a pastor. And Paul is writing here to Timothy about two guys in general, Hymenaeus and Philetus. And um, he's talking about them in verse 20. Of 2 Timothy 2, he talks about a great house, vessels of gold and silver and all of those kind of things. Then verse 22, flee useful lust, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace and uh, with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So Timothy is to flee youthful lust and to pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But, verse 23, here's the contrast to those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart, Timothy is to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But he is to avoid, in verse 23, foolish and ignorance dispute, disputes knowing that they generate strife. So he's to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, and he is to avoid foolish and ignorant disputes because all they do is generate generate strife. And then he says, excursus, and the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. Whether that's those who seek the Lord out of a pure heart, or whether it's those who 
engage in foolish and ignorant disputes and generate strife. Just do that to all. Able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth or acknowledge the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Now look at the components of this, of this argument of, of Paul here. It, it involves a work of God. Repentance involves a, a work of God. Here's a passage where Paul's warning Timothy about avoiding these, these arguments, false teachers, and while doing that, he instructs us and Timothy about repentance. How Timothy is to respond to the foolish and ignorant speculations, things not taught in the Bible, he tells them how to respond to those who need to repent. He's to correct them with kindness. You see that in verse 24. Servant of the Lord must not quarrel, be gentle at all. He's to correct them with kindness and truth. He's supposed to be able to teach. He's supposed to be able to, to, to lay out the truth. He's to have the ability to, to teach truth. And he's to be patient. There's that period of time. Not everyone that you teach the truth to is going to receive it right out of the gate. So you have to be patient. And you're to be humble. You're to be humble, you'd be in humility, because apart from the grace of God, you could be that person that was there. In humility, though, correcting those who are in opposition to themselves. They're in, they're in opposition to God, they're in opposition to themselves, and he's to correct them with truth and patience, if perhaps God will work in their hearts. Now look at how Paul defines this, this work of God in their, in their hearts. Verse 25. He's in humility correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance. And what does that look like? The result of that repentance is that they may know the truth and that they, they may acknowledge the truth and that they may come to their senses. That they, their eyes may be open. It has the idea of the mind. Repentance begins in the mind. You change your mind about God, about your sin. You, you're, you're taught by, by truth. But you know as well as I do, you were taught all kinds of truth before you submitted to it. And somewhere, somehow, under the preaching of the Word, in God's timing, it made sense. It, the light bulb came on. The work of the Spirit is to convince the world, or convict the world, as the King James says, same word, convince, of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. The work, the role of the Holy Spirit is as the truth is proclaimed to take the truth and to convince, to convict, to work. And that's really what he's talking about here. And when you do that, you come to your senses. And whenever you do that, you... you understand the truth, you, you know the truth. So, put that again, together. In Matthew, you have a changed life, and here you have a changed mind brought about through the preaching and teaching by the work of the, of the Spirit of God. Let me give you the third one, which is a little bit longer. 
it's displayed in our attitude towards sin. Three components of genuine repentance. It involves, it is accompanied by fruit, it involves a work of God, and it is displayed in our attitude towards sin. Now, the first one has to do with the works, the fruit that follows, that accompanies our profession of, yes, I repent. Number two has to do with the mind, has to do with God bringing you to your senses and changing you. And yes, there's a means by which He does that. It's through someone teaching and someone sharing the, the truth. And this, this last one is what's going on in your heart. So you've got the activities of your life, you get the work of the Spirit, and, and then this one is like an x-ray of the heart. What, what does it look like inside? You know, you'll hear someone say, well, you can't see my heart. Only God knows my heart. Well, that's absolutely true. But 2 Corinthians chapter 7 actually gives us a picture, gives us an x-ray of a repentant heart. It doesn't talk about the actions, but talks about the attitudes of a repentant heart. So turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 7. You remember how First John was talking about this morning, this, this false dichotomy this, with a person who says, I have fellowship with God, yet lives in darkness? A person who professes to love God, but, but doesn't love the brethren or hates the brethren? He says, no, no, no. those two things aren't separate. They're, they're together. If you love God, you'll love your brother. If, if you have fellowship with God, then you'll, then you'll have fellowship with, with His people. If you... If you follow the light, you'll walk in the light. You'll live in the light. If you, if you say you love me, then you'll keep my commandments, Jesus, Jesus says. Those are the, the activities. What's going on in the, in the heart? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, so I'm sorry, chapter 7, gives us a picture of, of what is is going on. Look, if you would, at verse, verse 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Here's where Paul is talking about the Corinthians' repentance. And he says, he's talking about writing the letter here in verse 8. He says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, wrote him a letter, I'm sure that letter echoed 2 Timothy 2, 23-26. He was patient. He was humble. He spoke the truth to them. He corrected them. He says, even if I made you, you sorrowful with my letter, I don't regret it, though I, though I did regret it. And what he means by that is, he means I don't like to hurt you. I don't take any pleasure in making you sorry. But I'm glad I made you sorry because that sorrow ended up working repentance in, in your heart. Though I do not regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle, the same letter made you sorry, but only for a while. Now I rejoice. This is what he's happy about. Not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. And there's our theme. For you were made sorrowful in a godly manner, after a godly sort, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces or works repentance, leading to salvation, resulting in salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world 
produces death. So here's a contrast. There is godly sorrow. There is, a, there is something that goes on inside of a person's heart that produces genuine repentance, and that leads to salvation. That's a good thing. But there's also sorrow of the world that ends up leading to death. How do you tell the difference? How do you tell the difference in your own heart? How do you tell the difference in someone else's heart? Well, verse 11, he starts the x-ray. For observe this very thing. What's the word observe mean? It's pay attention, it's to look at, it's examine. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed after a godly manner. You, you had this godly sorrow that I just talked about that would lead to, to salvation. And he gives seven attitudes here. And the first one, you're to observe this diligence that it produced in you. So, first he begins with this earnestness, diligence. King James says carefulness. So again, these are attitudes of the heart. You're going to see seven of them here, and all of them are attitudes. They're not actions. Now, those attitudes will lead to actions. They'll lead to some fruit, but these things begin with, within, the, within the heart. He says... What diligence. For observe what diligence it produced in you. It's a word that means seriousness towards a situation. And here, the sin, that creates a diligence or an eagerness to pursue righteousness. Paul says, I observed in you. How do I know that you had this sorrow after a godly manner rather than sorrow of the world that produces death? I observed in you Diligence or carefulness or earnestness. And repentance begins with an earnestness to do right, and it continues. You will find in your heart an earnestness, a sincerity, as it relates to, to sin and to truth. So he observes, first of all, a carefulness or an earnestness in the heart about your sin and the situation that you find yourself in. Look at the second one. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. It's a, the idea of a vindication. A clearing of yourself. A vindication of yourself. Now this is not a, a self-defense. The attitude of the heart would be an earnestness or a sincerity toward your sin and your situation. And the second thing, the second attitude that he identifies, he observed in the Corinthians was, was a desire to change your association with the sin through a changed life. How do you clear yourself? How do you clear yourself? I noticed on WSET, that wonderful news outlet that is here in, in Lynchburg, where there's a local man who has been accused accused of, of, um, of having a relationship with a 17-year-old girl. He's a music teacher. And the so-called reporter was digging around. I have no idea who the guy is. I don't know if he's guilty or innocent. If he is, the law will prove that out. And if he's guilty, then he should be punished to the full extent of the, of the law. But the headline that WSET ran was, Former church music teacher 
indicted for you know, sexual indiscretion with a minor. And then you begin to read, and the man was a part-time music instructor in 1998 at Blue Ridge Community Church. So how many years ago is that? Well, I have no idea. You know, he was there for like two or three years, but that was the headline that he ran. And I just started thinking about this, about this man. And I thought, if, if this is true, um, I really have pity you know, for his soul. If this is not true, how could he ever vindicate his name? Could he ever clear it? I mean, because I can promise you that, 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 that if it happened, his name should be drugged through the mud. If it didn't, I can promise you WSET is not going to run a counter story. <laughs> nor, are they, nor are they going to, 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 to do anything to try to clear Blue Ridge Community Church's name that had nothing to do with the story that they reported on. Something happened 15, 20 years ago or whenever, whenever it was. Well, this idea here of this word, what clearing of yourselves, what vindication of yourselves, when someone is genuinely repentant, the attitude of their heart is they want to clear their name. They want to clear their testimony of sin. A person can have a testimony before men and can have, a, have one before God, and here there's a desire that they, that they match when they haven't matched because of their sin. When a person falls into sin, they become associated with that sin. True repentance comes. When true repentance comes, they desire to cease that association. They don't want to be associated with their sin any longer. They don't want a testimony that is equated with sin. They want a testimony that's equated with God. They instead desire to be associated with repentance. You know Spurgeon's famous quote, When a man becomes as well known for his repentance as he was for his sin... Then he can be restored. And even then, there's obviously limitations on that restoration. And when you desire to vindicate your testimony, your, your new attitude and new actions, this is not a self-defense mechanism. This is, I don't want to be associated with that sin anymore. It's an attitude of the heart. I'm very sincere when it comes to sin. And here, I, want to, I, just, I don't want to be known by that. I, I want to be known from God. Uh, known of a, a man or a woman of God. Look at the third one. What diligence have produced in you? What clearing of yourselves? What indignation? Now notice these are all attitudes. X-ray of the heart. Can't see the heart, but the Apostle Paul here gives us like in biology class, you remember in your bi- biology textbooks you'd have the frog that was laying there and then you'd have those clear transparencies that showed the guts and all the stuff that laid over top. He's, he, you can't see the heart, but he, he's giving you something to lay over top of your heart and see what matches up and, and what doesn't. I'm repentant. Is there fruit in your life? What is the attitude of the, of the heart? How do you know a genuine work of God has happened? This word indignation, it's a word that means anger. Um, it's anger that's aroused, not of getting caught, but it's an anger that's aroused by the, by the thought of, of something to be wrong. Um, it's not an anger toward the person who confronts you. One of the telltale signs that, that, you, that a person lacks repentance or you lack repentance is if someone confronts you, you, you know, now they can do it wrong and that can stir you up a little bit, but whenever you stand back and, and evaluate it, you, you end up being like David. 
Remember David's response to Nathan when he tells the whole story? Remember David's response, you know, about that man that took the little ewe lamb, you know, off of his head? And then Nathan says, you're the man, David. Thou art the man. And how did, how did David respond? He was angry over that sin. He should have been. And then he owned it. Anger toward the wrong that you've done, not toward the person that's confronting you. Anger toward the fact that you did it. And when a person begins to defend themselves, it's an indication that they've come short of understanding of their sin. And it's a, it's a sure sign that they lack repentance. I don't know about you, but whenever I sin, I know, Tracy, it's hard to believe that I do that, but I do. She's not here. I can say that. She slipped out in the foyer. Yeah, you should. When I sin, I, I, I just, I hate it. Um, and any time I play with sin, it's because I lack sincerity toward it. Um, and if there's a sin that marks me, if there's patterns in my life, patterns of, of failure, patterns of failing uh, in any way, uh, my faithfulness to the Lord, being a good pastor, whatever it is, when that pattern begins to mark me, I, I, I don't want to be associated with that. And, and, and yet when I am, I hate it. I hate it. Get angry at myself. You get mad at yourself when you sin. I mean, I, it's just like you, you dummy, dummy. Why did you do that? You, you hate it. There's a there's an indignation. I mean, there's a sense sometimes that you know you just man, if you could do something to just just cut the flesh out of you and get rid of it, you, you would, but you can't because you're encased in unredeemed flesh. But one day, one day at redemption, we will be freed. This attitude is. Is that anger, it's indignation toward the wrong that I've committed? Look at the fourth one. What fear? Attitude. What indignation, what anger, what, what fear? It's the word where we get phobia. Um, arachnophobia, fear of, of spiders. Here, it means fear or terror. An attitude produced in the heart when a person sins. And when repentance comes, people get afraid. And you should be afraid. We should all be afraid whenever we sin, believer or not. A person, when a person is, is repentant and they're granted repentance, they realize what they've done, and there's a moment when they're struck like a lightning bolt, fear of God. And they may go through long periods of time whenever they're just bumping along and, yeah, I know it's wrong, but then, then, then when godly sorrow works, repentance comes, there's a, there's a fear. What is Romans, one, uh, Romans 3? You know Romans 3 when it gives the, the picture of an unregenerate person, someone who is in their depraved condition. goes through that whole thing. How does, how does Romans 3 end? How does it end describing the unregenerate, the unrepentant person? What does it say? There is no fear of God before their eyes. A repentant person, the attitude is, is fear. It's an attitude of, of 
you know, of terror. And and repentance involves that that attitude. Number five, in this list of this X-ray, what indignation, what fear, um, what vehement desire is what the New King James says. It's it's uh, it's the idea of a of a yearning or or longing. That's where the desire comes in, and it's a it's a strong desire. It's vehement. Um, attitude of the heart. What yearning or longing? There's a there's a yearning to be restored to God. There's a desire to be cleansed. A desire to be right with God. A desire to go back into fellowship with Him. A desire to have that that stain removed. Thinking as we sang that song, you know, um, what can wash away my sin and the, and that that blot that that's removed. You've probably all had a uh, an article of clothing that you really liked, and you got something on it, and you know you did everything that you could. You put the shout wipe, or you know you sent it to the dry cleaners or whatever, and then it comes back and the stain remains and it's still still there. Um, people will try everything in their life to, to do it themselves, to clean themselves up, but only Christ cleanses to the soul. And this is the desire of genuine yearning or longing. David does this over and over in the penitential Psalms. He has a desire for the to be cleansed. And a believer will not remain in fear forever. He'll move from that fear to a longing for the fellowship, a vehement desire for the fellowship that he once had with God. Look at the next one there. What vehement desire, what zeal. It's a word that means jealousy. What zeal that God and God's name needs defended. You desire to see justice done. A zealous person. Think of the zealots. I said before, the beautiful picture in the twelve disciples is you have Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. And they come together in fellowship because of Christ. The two sworn enemies. The zealot hated Rome. They wanted to... They wanted to to throw off the yoke of Rome. They were willing to lay down their lives for it. They were willing to fight for it. Think of that when you hear this word zeal or jealousy. And it has to do with repentant heart. The attitude of the heart is, is you're zealous. You, you want to see justice done. You, you hate this sin, hate what it's brought to God and to your own life. It's the idea of loving something so much that you hate anyone or anything that harms it. And when a person is repentant, to you love God so much that, that you hate anything that harms His name. It's a sin of justice, a sense of justice done toward your own sin. Because it's, it's defamed the name of the God that, that you love. The last one. What vindication? King James says revenge. It's what avenging of the wrong. 
It's an attitude that says, this has got to be made right, and whatever it costs me, I'm willing to, I'm willing to pay. It's a sinner who no longer tries to cover or defend himself. He wants sin punished and dealt with no matter the cost. He is more concerned with what it costs God in his honor than the shame that it would bring him. So there's attitudes here of the heart. And look at how Paul ends in verse 11. In all these things, in all things, you proved, you demonstrated yourself to be clear in this matter. So Paul begins with observe, for this is what I observed in you, all of these attitudes, and you demonstrated these attitudes in your life. Paul says, in every way, you demonstrated this. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had been wrong, or for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoice exceedingly for the more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you. So, portrait, the outer workings, fruit, the inner workings, the attitudes of the heart, the umbrella, the glue that holds it together, the spiritual work that is done is done by, by the Lord through the preaching of, of the Word. So, why come to church? Why read the Bible? Why talk, speak the Word to one another? Because when you do that, that's when the Lord does um, this work. So, as you're looking this week and doing some evaluation, as I'm evaluating, um, pray that the Lord would change your mind, would give you a sense, would, would help you to come to your senses in the places that you're not in your right mind, places that you've been overtaken. Pray that He would do that work uh, in your heart. If you, you need correction, go to someone. If someone comes to you, give that correction in gentleness and in humility and be able to teach them instructing them. Um, and then pray that the Lord would do that, do that spiritual work and then begin to look for the fruit that's, that's there in your life. The Bible is very, very plain, very clear, isn't it? And I'm very thankful for it. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank You for just this picture of being a follower, a disciple is someone, you describe it as someone who, who begins to follow a teacher and then we begin to observe all the things that you have taught us, all the things that you said. And yet, Lord, we, we know that as we, we want to observe, we want to do right, want to think right, that um, we're going to come up short. And so we're a confessing people and a repenting people. It's not a one-time thing. Oh yes, there's a there's a point, a moment when a relationship with you is initiated, but and it's secure from that point forward. But an evidence of that is we say the same thing that you do about our sin, and that our mind is changing and our lives are changing. Um, Lord, I pray for this in my own life. Um, I pray for everyone here and everyone who heard this morning 
that, that You would help us to take inventory. You would help us to rest in the fact that the past is the past and You can't even change that. Um, and You tell us to, to forget what is behind, to turn from our old lives, our old sins, place those things under the blood, and strive and move forward. Give us hope and energy to do that. We need it. We need Your Spirit. We need Your Word. We need one another. Bless us this week, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. Next Sunday, um, Lord willing, we'll be back in the Foundation Series in Exodus on Sunday morning. And Sunday night, we will start our series in Revelation. So come, invite other people to come. Be looking at some prophecy, what awaits us. It's going to be a good time. Pray for me. Pray that uh, that I'll study well so I can preach well. Um, you, If you want me to do better, you see any deficiencies, uh, start on your knees first. I am a weak man. I need your prayers. Pray both for the series, Exodus, and for, for Revelation. And that will benefit you as much as it will me. All right? God bless you. You have a good night.